0: This is Real Estate Rookie, episode 266.
1: Most people, when they're they're going into a house hack, their goal isn't necessarily to make, you know, $500 a month in cash flow. Their goal is to subsidize their cost of living. So if you can cover the majority or sometimes all of your mortgage by renting out these additional units, then you are probably doing a pretty good job because now you're able to save that money you would typically be spending on your your rent or your mortgage say whatever it's 2000 bucks a month and now you can put that aside to start saving towards your next property so for a lot of people, when they're house hacking, it's not necessarily the, the cash flow per se that they're looking for, it's how much of my mortgage can I offset by renting out these units.
0: My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am here with my co-host, Tony Robinson.
1: And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we're bringing you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And I want to start today's episode by shouting out a, a really cool review that came in. Uh, this person loves us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So they go by the username TT Ray and the, uh, the title of this, of this, uh, review says rookie vitamins and TT goes on to say, this podcast has given me the confidence to make moves. I was sitting on my mother's home for about a year before committing to gutting and renovating it. But listening to Ashley and Tony every morning was like taking my morning vitamins. My real estate immune system got stronger and I completed the renovation project Found a tenant, and now it's cash flowing. I listen every morning as a part of my morning routine. I love how they break concepts down into nuggets that are actionable. No other podcast compares. Great job, guys! I just gotta be one be. That, that's like one of the coolest reviews I've read. In yeah. One. So, T.T. Ray, we we appreciate you. And for all of our Rickys that are listening, if you have let's let's say review, we appreciate you. If you have not yet, uh, please take the you know two to three minutes out of your day to, to leave us an honest rating and review. More reviews we get, more folks we can help, and helping folks is what we like to do. So, Ash, what's up? How are you doing?
0: Well, you know what? I feel like I haven't done this in a while since we recorded, but I feel like I really need to tell you guys more about my book that I just published.
1: Yeah. What's <laughs> <laughs> I feel like
0: haven't talked at all, but here it is, right here, Cynic here, uh, The Real Estate Rookie, 90 Days to Your First Investment. There's lots of mentions of Tony uh, in here, but... Um, yeah, so if you guys haven't checked it out, I would appreciate it if you look into it and see if it's a, a good fit for you.
1: How's it how's it feel? I should be like a, a published author. What's that feeling?
0: Um, well, I sent my mom like twenty books and she got the package in the mail and was telling me, Oh, I am so excited, somebody saw me something and then I just ugh, just thought it was your it was just books nothing. <laughs> like, thanks a lot, Mom. <laughs> 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 but uh yeah, it was uh, so it launched on January tenth and did like a nice little dinner out to kind of celebrate. And um, so now I got to get a list together to publishing of all my friends to send copies to. And yeah, but uh, it's been pretty cool. Um, everyone should be getting their, their books now that did the pre-order pretty soon. And it'll be exciting to hear what people think about it. Yeah.
1: Love it. Well, I'm super happy for you. I know you put a lot of time and effort and energy into that book, and it's so cool because we we already see what the Rookie podcast is doing for folks, so the fact that we now get to, you know, you get to replicate that with this book, you know, it's, it's so cool. So I'm excited to see where it goes for you.
0: And Tony and I are working on a little secret something too, um, so you guys, stay tuned for that too, because Tony may be an author soon too.
1: Fingers crossed. We'll see. <laughs>
0: So, uh, Tony, any exciting stories to tell us, or any boring banter before we get into today's episode?
1: Uh, let's see. What's the most boring thing I can think about that we can talk about today?
0: What do um, you eat this morning for breakfast? You know, that you so have the same, same meal to... every single day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, so I'm like gearing up uh, my training for another competition. So I was initially planning to do a show at the end of April, but I think I might push it back to uh, to May, probably just to give myself a little bit more time. But Um, I actually didn't have breakfast this morning. I woke up and I was doing stuff on the computer before I knew it. We had to jump on the sharp recording. So I had a protein shake for breakfast this morning. That was about it. (laughs) But uh, most days, my breakfast is 10 egg whites, two regular eggs, and a little bit of oatmeal.
0: So I don't know what made me think of this, but like something that's like boring I guess in a sense but so we've been implementing these Monday afternoon meetings we were doing Tuesday mornings but Tuesdays are when you and I record and it just like I have another call I do every Tuesday morning so it's just like too many calls in that day to actually sit down and focus on a meeting so we moved them to Monday afternoons and so we have an agenda built out and so it's just me and my one business partner Daryl and basically we go through like you know what each person did last week, what were our wins, what do we want to accomplish going forward, what are the things we need to prioritize, and then what are the things we want to talk about next week. And then we just take the agenda, roll it over to each week. And if you, you know, even if this is something you do with your spouse, um, you know, your significant other or your business partner, like if you guys aren't implementing this, I highly recommend it. Like, it doesn't take that much time. But with ours, we also have a section for travel because we do a lot of travel together. So Last week on our travel is, you know, we're going to Tony's short-term rental summit. And the one night we're actually going to Disney Springs for dinner. Okay. So we're going through our agenda, everything. And one of the things was pick the restaurant to book reservations for Disney Springs. 20 minutes later, we are in YouTube videos of the best and worst places to eat at Disney Springs. It was just like how is this happening right now? Like we could just fly through everything that we get sucked into watching YouTube videos on where we're going to eat dinner one night. (laughs) But it just like goes to show that like, you know, leaving those little things in that like adding things like that into your agenda that excite you or, you know, motivate you. Cause then it's like, okay, we got to get all this work done now so that we can go and enjoy ourselves and not actually have to be like, you know, we can, we want to use a lot of time for like, you know obviously enjoying your conference and things like that and not having to be like all these other things we got to do in the back of our mind
1: yeah and it's a it's an interesting point because one of one of the things i'm really trying to focus on and and this new year is less time doing and more time deciding and delegating like at i i feel like my time is best spent in my business at this point not like if there's a meeting almost no action item should be assigned to Tony. Like like there's enough people that I work with now where I should be able to delegate that task to someone else. Mm -hmm. And really the only thing I'm doing is deciding. I'm making a decision saying, okay, yes, this thing. Okay, not that thing. Yes, this thing. And then handing it off to someone else because there were moments where I was like, why am I doing this still? Like for example, we were on vacation earlier this year or late last year, and we had a YouTube video coming out for the Real Estate Robinson's channel. And I was like, oh crap, we don't have a thumbnail. Like I was still doing the thumbnails. So I'm on vacation making a thumbnail. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And as soon as I got back, I found a graphic designer on Upwork. Now he does all of our thumbnails and he does it way better than I ever could. So anyway, just as I'm thinking about next year and and for a lot of our rookies that are listening as well, as your business starts to scale, like think about what are the things you should no longer be doing and then delegate those off to, to someone else.
0: And also making sure that it's just the high level decisions too. And that's something I had heard Ryan Paneda talk about when I interviewed him and in, um, I think it was Austin, Texas. Maybe at a, a conference there is he talked about how don't even ask him the question like he's high level decisions only. There's other decision makers in place, and he only has to really think about those high levels that will actually make a huge impact. Um, on his business where you know anything mediocre there's somebody else that's making that decision too so he's not overwhelmed with things because his everything set into place and kind of like his whole org chart set out as to like these are the things that actually need to come to me and don't bother me with anything else which I think is pretty interesting and you know Obviously, a great system to have set up. The hard part is actually getting yourself set up so that you are in that position.
1: Yeah, and finding the right people and, you know, all those good things. So that that's always a challenge. But And obviously, you know, for our rookies, you most of you are at the beginning phases of your, your investing journey. So don't feel like you need to set this up on day one. But it is an important concept for you to understand so that as your business starts to scale, you know You know, that the the right decision is to start plugging people into these different roles so you can focus on the bigger picture tasks. Like, Ash, for me and you, the majority of our time should be spent in front of the microphone recording this podcast, in front of our computers, writing our books, um, and doing other things that are, like, super important. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
2: You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A.
3: Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP.
1: All right, so today's first question comes from Nadine Chowdhury and Nadine's question is, hi all, learning more about doing property analysis and wondering if I'm planning on a house hack on a multi-unit with an FHA loan, should you only worry if it's cash flowing once you hit 20% and get rid of your PMI and a high cost of living area? Otherwise, it seems as if no properties will be able to satisfy traditional rules around what a property should cash flow or make over the first year. And just to clarify, I think when Nadim says uh, once you hit 20%, what she's talking about is the loan balance uh, in comparison to the the property's value, um, once you're at eighty percent or less of, on your loan balance and your PMI goes away, um, so a, a couple of things to to break down here, Nadim, I, I think the the first question you have to ask yourself is what is your goal with this house hack? Most people when they're when they're going into a house hack, their goal isn't necessarily to make you know five hundred dollars a month in cash flow. Their goal is to subsidize their cost of living. So if you can cover the majority, or sometimes all, of your mortgage by renting out these additional units, then you are probably doing a pretty good job because now you're able to save that money you would typically be spending on your your rent or your mortgage. Say whatever it's two thousand bucks a month, and now you can put that aside to start saving towards your next property. So for a lot of people, when they're house hacking. It's not necessarily the the cash flow per se that they're looking for. It's how much of my mortgage can I offset by renting out these units? What are your thoughts on that, Ash?
0: Yeah, so Nadim, what you should do is like remove yourself from the property and put somebody else in the unit or the room that you're going to house hack in and see, okay, what would you be able to charge for rent on that? Does the property cash flow after you receive now that additional rent from the property? So I think using that as kind of a basis and looking at it that way it will make you realize more as to like okay this is not a cash flowing property it's more of like yes you are actually making money off of this because you're building equity and you're not having to pay any living expenses so look at if for some reason you had to move out of the property would it still cash flow if you put somebody into your unit um, or at least broke even um, on the property but I've you know, love the cash flow. So if you can make it cash flow, if you were to move out of the property, yes, great. But also take into consideration if you were to go and rent a comparable unit, what would you pay and rent to live in that property too? And then kind of say, okay, that's, you know, $1,500 I'm actually saving a month. So um, definitely look into that. And then if you can live there and make money off of it and cash flow too, like awesome even way better yeah especially when you get down to that getting rid of your pmi that definitely helps my sister when she bought her house hack she was paying i think it was 45 dollars a month to live there in that property which it for her unit probably had rented for like 850 900 a month and she was living there for 45 a month so we consider that a huge win, even though she's not getting any cash flow off of that property, which I think she is now because she's raised rent for the lower unit. And she's maybe making, you know, $100 off of it or something, not paying anything now. But um, that was still a huge win to only pay $45 a month uh, to live in that property.
1: Yeah, and, and it mentions that they're, they're in a high cost of living area. And I think it's even more difficult to find deals to just like create a ton of cash flow as a house hack in those kinds of areas as well. Uh, The only other thing you might want to consider, Nadim, is if you've got a multi-unit property, maybe instead of renting each unit out, can you rent out each room, right? Say that you've got, I don't know, like a, a triplex, you're going to live in one unit and you've got two other units. Instead of renting out that entire unit, maybe it's a two-two and a and another two-two. Like now you've got four rooms you can rent out, and what does that look like? And there's a ton of guests that have come on the on the podcast that have talked about the the rent by the room strategy. But typically, you can maximize or increase your revenue per each unit if you rent out the rooms as opposed to renting out each unit. And we even had a guest, and I wish I could remember which guest this was. We had a guest that was doing that, but they also rented out the rooms in their own unit. Do you remember this, Ash? Like, he was sleeping on the couch in the living room just so he could rent out the other rooms in in the unit. So there's so many ways to maximize the revenue on a house hack.
0: Yeah, and there's, like, you can incorporate different strategies, too. So, you know, if you get a four-unit, if you're in an area that demands it, turning one of those units into a short-term rental... Then having the other two long-term rentals or even doing one as a medium-term rental um, and, you know, renting it out for 30 plus days to traveling nurses or whatever. Sometimes that can actually maximize your cash flow, too, instead of just doing a long-term rental.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great part of having those multiple units, like you said, is you can throw a bunch of different strategies into each unit. So if you're in one, say it's a, a two bed, you live in one bedroom, rent out the other bedroom. You've got one you're doing as a as a medium term rental, another one you're doing as a as a long term or, or a short term rental. And now you've got income coming in in a, a bunch of different ways. So that's that's cool.
0: Yeah, Craig Curlap, who wrote the book The House Hacking Strategy, um, you can find in the Bear Pockets bookstore. He would buy properties. He lived in Denver, Colorado, and he would rent by the room. He would have one of the rooms rent out the other ones, and then in the basement. You would make a basement unit, furnish it, and have the basement as the short-term rental. And that's what he did with uh, several of his house hacks. And then after he had lived there for a year, he would go and purchase another one and do the same thing. And he built up his rental portfolio that way.
1: I think it might have been Craig who said it was his first house hack where he was sleeping on the couch.
0: Hey, You know what? That definitely sounds like something he would do. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Um, when, anything else on this, or Should we roll to the next question?
0: Yeah, let's go to the next one.
1: All right. So question number two comes from Jason Lamb. Jason says, just curious, what issues have you all run into with unpermitted renovations? Obviously, you should always do things the right way, but I'm just trying to understand what kind of issues come up and when. For example, do buyers normally look for permits or is it just their lenders, etc.? cetera? Um, so have you ever had any issues actually with unpermitted renovations and if so, how did you handle those?
0: No, but I did. Um, we did just have on episode 265. Um, mm-hmm. So this past Wednesday, you guys should go back and listen. We had Devana and Reed on, and they talked about a property they purchased that they kn- knew had an unpermitted addition to the back of it. And they knew it was not permitted, but they didn't need it permitted, they thought. so they went and pulled permits to do some electrical work plumbing work and other renovations through the property and when they did that the inspector came and said well actually this is not permitted so you have to take it down and they had to rip off the back of the house where this addition was and they said it was just like an eyesore as to how it was set up and they actually had to build back onto that same uh, space that same pad build a new addition back onto the property so that was definitely something they did not expect and you know made them go way over budget I guess on the property
1: and I feel like it, it definitely varies by the the city or, or county that you're operating in like some cities and counties are going to be more strict about those things others will be less strict um I think Devon and Reeds situation is probably the absolute worst <laughs> situation yeah. that that could happen um we we had a a rehab that we did recently where Like we, we missed a permit in the bathroom, but we'd already completed the entire bathroom and we were nervous. They were going to come through and like make us demo the entire bathroom, do it all over again. But the folks in the city were super understanding and they said, Hey, you know, we're just going to test a couple of things in it and it looks good. Um, But we have a a, a separate property where we purchased this property um, and it already had one of those big like swim up spas. So it's like a, it's, it's much bigger than a hot tub, but definitely not as big as a pool, like 15 feet long or something like that. Um, And. It, it came with the property but when we went to go pull the permit for the short-term rental um they did the inspection and said hey this this permit was never pulled to ins- uh, A permit was never pulled to do the electrical for the spa. So now before we can issue your permit, you guys have to go back and get this electrical thing uh, sorted out. So depending on what you're looking to use a property for, depending on what the inspection process looks like for that city, um, depending on if the county or city needs to get back into that property to do an inspection for something else, there's a lot of different variables that could happen. So I I would say there are some risks that come along with buying uh, units that include properties that are not permitted correctly.
0: Yeah. And when I did my flip with James Danard in Seattle, Washington, it was really the first time I dealt with like heavy permits and like an understanding of them. I mean, where, you know, where I live, it's just you go and talk to the code enforcement officer and, you know, you get your building permit and you're on your way. Like, so with him, what he actually does too is when he's, you know, purchasing a property, he pulls the permits on the city's website. And for, you know, for me, you can't None of these little towns have, you know, permits online that you can actually go and look them up. You have to actually physically go there and ask for them. But he w- he pulls the permits on the property, but also he'll keep note of who the contractors were that did the work on those properties. So if he is going and doing a rehab and be like, OK, this was the last person to do electrical work, maybe since they know the property, they'll be able to do the work more efficient and maybe even you know, I'll get it cheaper because they already know so much is going on and they don't have to take the time to kind of figure out the electrical of that property or things like that. So I thought that was just like a great little flip tip as he called us you know, when you pull the permits, look at who the actual contractor was on the property that you are using too. Or if the property, or if the, you know, the work is really bad at it, that's how you're rehabbing it because (laughs) the plumbing is all messed up. you know, not to use that contractor. Who
1: not to call. Who not to call yeah, I mean, James is obviously like an encyclopedia of all things rehab and flipping. So um anything he does, we should all try and try and emulate. La- last thing I'll say is that we we actually bought a property um that's listed right now as one of our turnkey short-term rentals. And the property itself on paper was a three bedroom. But when you walked in, the previous owner, had knocked down the walls between all the bedrooms and just had like one massive bedroom. I guess it was a single lady living by herself. And she's like, I don't need three bedrooms. I just want one massive like master suite. Um, So we were able to essentially just put those three bedrooms back in place because she had knocked down the walls unpermitted. So we were able just like without having to really reproach anything, just like put it back to the original floor plan. Um, So there's some some nuances there for sure. All right. Anything else on that one, Ashley?
0: No, let's go on to our next one. Um, I feel like this is really going to hit home for you and you're going to have some personal experience (laughs) Yeah.
1: But hopefully you can give us some more insight because we were so lost when this happens. But anyway, next question comes from Juan Alvarez. And Juan says, one of our vacant units has frozen water lines due to the bad weather in DFW in in Texas. Do you recommend I turn the supply valve off so it doesn't flood the home if it breaks the pipe or starts to thaw uh, the pipes out? What do you suggest I do? So we had our first um, experience with frozen pipes um, this past Christmas. We actually had to cancel a few reservations because pipes weren't working and water was frozen. And you know, water is a kind of an important thing to have at a short-term rental. So if the pipes are not working; people can't stay. And uh, we we actually posted on Instagram just kind of about the issue. And we had so many people talk about different things that they do to um, help prevent. Lines from freezing in the first place, and some other like re- remediation things they do to help uh, solve those issues. So, yeah, thawing the lines is is one thing, and we had our our crew out there kind of thawing the lines. One limitation to thawing the lines out is that they can only thaw the lines they have access to. So, if the lines are frozen underground, maybe where your main water supply about or like your main water supply line is you can't thaw that out because you can't get to that line. And that was the issue we were having our property. We could thaw the lines that were in the house invisible, but the stuff that was underground, we had no way of getting getting to it. So one of the tips that we got was that when it gets cold, you should always leave a a slow drip going um, on your property or at your property because that little flow of water will help prevent the lines from thawing out. Um, Another thing that was told to us is that you should almost never put your, even though it looks really nice, if you're in a place that's Prone to freezing pipes never put your your uh, like your kitchen sink in front of a window because for whatever reason because there's you know less insulation those pipes tend to uh, freeze pretty quickly as well so there's a lot of little things we learned around how to prevent this from happening but Ashley you live in uh, Buffalo New York which had probably one of the worst freezes on record not too long ago so you you probably have some more insight in this than I do
0: yeah, this is like something I'm always like very proactive about is like freezing pipes, especially if we're rehabbing a property or if we have a property under contract and I know that it's vacant, like I am, you know, like going into the winter, I make sure like have the, you know, this we call it is a property winterized, okay? So you'll see this a lot with foreclosure property.
1: I just want to say like winterizing is not a thing in California. Like (laughs) someone said, did you like, did you like, what does that even mean? Like in winter, we're like wearing shorts and stuff. So like (laughs) if you're like me where you live in a state that isn't prone to getting froze, uh, listen to what Ash is about to say, because you're going to save yourself a world of trouble um, if you do that. So anyway.
0: Yeah. So this this is common with like people who have seasonal properties. So maybe you have a lake house or you have a cabin where maybe there's not even any heat in the property because it's a lake house and you're just there in the summer and you don't have heat through it. Or the biggest part of it is maybe you do have heat, but your pipes aren't insulated. So maybe there's just a crawl space under the house. So what people do is they winterize the house where you actually go and drain all the, the water lines and you turn the water off to the property. So if you go to like a property that is owned by the bank, maybe it was foreclosed on, you'll have there's usually like a maintenance company that's taking care of the property and they'll have like tape over the toilet they'll have tape over the faucet like this property is winterized don't flush the toilet don't turn on and you know any of the valves there's no water to the property um so winterizing a property is like if you're go if you're going under contract in a cold area and the property is vacant make sure that the seller has winterized property and that there is no water throwing. So basically why you don't want your pipes to freeze is because let's go back to basic science when, you know, water turns to ice, it expands. Think of like water in a water bottle, okay, when it freezes. So what it does is it can cause your pipes to crack because of all that pressure from the ice. So then when the water melts, the ice melts and back into water, it shoots out of wherever those cracks were. OK, so that's where that's where the issues come in. It's that the actual freezing causes the cracks and then the water shoots out of it. So mm-hmm. me as anal as I am, I have one rehab right now where, you know, when the deep freeze was coming, I was like, we don't have any water going through this. Right. I just want to make sure like I'm pretty sure I'm looking at it. We don't have water to the property yet. Everyone. Yes. Yes. Like it's fine. Like it's good. Blah, blah, blah. There was about three inches of the main water line coming into the property that was into the, the property. Somehow, someone had switched off the breaker, so the furnace shut off in the property. Well, just in that those little three inches sticking out of the ground where the pine, we have a spigot on there right now because the water lines aren't hooked up, completely cracked the pipe. Water was shooting out all over. So luckily... That same day, somebody was there and saw this happening. We were able to plug it up, fix it that night, and take care of it. But also, the furnace got ice buildup in it because it, the furnace rose. and so we actually had to have the plumber come out and defrost the furnace and to get it get it going again. So. As much as I would like to say I'm very experienced and knowledgeable about pipes freezing, it still happened to me because I listened to my contractors and I didn't actually go to the property because I would have seen that little pipe sticking up and I would have known. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so just I, I think the biggest like piece of advice, like have your property winterized if you're not going to be, you know, living there, you're not going to have, you know, the rehab's going to be going on and you're, you know, want to make sure the, you know, there, that doesn't happen, the pipes don't freeze, winterize it if you're doing the rehab, or you can actually go and, like, make sure there's constantly water dripping through the pipes, too.
1: Ash, who, who do you go to so winterize the property? Like, is that something that plumbers typically handle for you? Is it is there someone else? Like, if you want to winterize, who are you calling?
0: Yeah, a plumber can definitely do that, but it's something that you can just, you know, YouTube real quickly and do it yourself. Like, a lot of the people that own lake houses around here, you know, they set up a day, That they go and they, if, you know, it's not seasonal where their pipes are exposed, um, then they'll just, you know, usually go and do it themselves. And that's part of their yearly routine. And in the spring, they'll come and turn the water back on and check everything.
1: Have you ever had like one of your main water lines break?
0: I don't think so. I've had like the main sewer line get cracks in it and stuff, but I never the main water line
1: uh, I've never had any like main like major plumbing issues either. Um, just just really quick on the main sewer line that actually happened to my aunt. Um, she bought a house, and uh, it wasn't investor it was like their primary residence. And the main sewer line that connected into like the city sewer cracked. um and they made her replace it, even though the crack was coming from the city. And she had to like dig up all of the sidewalk and do all these other crazy things. And it turns like this big ordeal. So anyway.
0: Yeah, we had to do that in front of a duplex too. It's like get a mini excavator there, dig it all up. And yeah, it was was a pain.
1: Yeah. The only reason I bring that up is like if one of those main lines that like tie into like any kind of public utility end up breaking... Um, it's like super expensive to to get those repaired. So do
0: the sc- sewer scope inspection. That's one, another thing I learned from James Deanard. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> always do the sewer scope. You maybe if you decide to skip the home inspection when you're buying it, but do that sewer
1: line scope. Well, lots of frozen pipes. And actually, if you guys go to um, the Bigger Pockets Instagram, my wife Sarah made that reel that I was talking about. But Bigger Pockets was a collaborator, so it's on there. And there are literally, I, I think at this point, like over a hundred comments of people like dropping tips on how they prevent their lines from freezing. So maybe the producers can find that and and add it in the the show notes. But there's a lot of really good information on that
2: post. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com Vacasa.
1: Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com rookie. Just go to Indeed.com rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. So next question here comes from Kyle Campbell. And Kyle says, my wife and I own two duplexes. We're ready to make an offer on a third. However, this third property is a FISBO, which means for sale by owner. And, and this would be a first for us. What steps do you go through when buying FISBO? We've read a lot and listened to thousands of podcasts, but still looking for any and all advice. Thanks. So Ash, I know you've, you've bought FISBO, I have as well, but from, from your perspective, what are... What are some of the differences that a rookie should look out for um, or go in Fitzbo?
0: Yeah. So the first thing is you're most likely not using an agent. Um, oftentimes you still can. Like you could go to them and say, I'm going to pay the agent directly. And I want to use an agent to facilitate that deal, whether it's to do the paperwork or to help you negotiate or um, anything like that. So the thing, the biggest thing for me, the difference is you're not going to have a real estate agent fill out the real estate contract for you. Uh, So that's either, you know, I use an attorney for that, um, but you also have to use an attorney in New York State where I will tell my attorney, you know, what the terms are and then she'll plug it into her real estate contract and then I take it to the seller. Um, One thing you can do is a letter of intent. If you just Google that, there's tons of samples out there. If you're in the rookie boot camp, it's included in there. You get a copy of it. And it just basically gives the initial terms of your offer without going through a full-blown contract and then just says like this contract is based on attorney approval. These terms are based on that. So it kind of gives you some leeway. But I usually write one of those up myself without even having to, you know, talk with my attorney. Then that's where I negotiate with the seller. And then once we agree on terms and we have a signed letter of intent, that's where I pass those terms off to my real estate attorney where she draws up a contract as to what those terms are. Then I have the seller sign that. Uh, one thing with doing direct, dealing directly with the seller is I think you have a huge advantage with negotiating. That's not always the case, but getting face-to-face with the seller and really figuring out why they're selling. And also if you're going to be doing some kind of creative financing, like pitching to them the benefits of seller financing, things like that, it is so much easier to sell the creative financing option to the seller than having it go from you to your real estate agent, to their real estate agent, then back to them like playing telephone. So that's why I love for sale by owner is because you get to deal directly with the seller for negotiating.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic breakdown, Ashley. And, you know, we, we've purchased a few um, like directly from the owners as well. And our our process is, is fairly similar. Um, we still do use uh, title and escrow to facilitate the transaction. So, even if you're going FISBO, we'll still make sure that there's some uh, third party in there to make sure that all of the paperwork with the county gets filed correctly. Um, you're still getting things like title insurance to make sure that there's no issues with the title. Um, and that, that, you know, that that party, uh, escrow or title companies is there to manage all the funds to make sure people get paid out appropriately. Um, but outside of that, it's honestly pretty much the same process. And mm-hmm. to your point, Ashley, it's honestly a little bit easier because there's less back and forth between you, know, you and your agent, their agent, that seller. Um, so I, I think the the ease of the transaction is definitely there. But if it is your first time doing it, Kyle, uh, I would just try and find a, a and I don't know what state you're in, but for me, I always go to my escrow company first, and I say, hey, I'm looking to buy this property, I'm looking to sell this property, and then my escrow company is one that draws up all the documents and make sure that everyone's docu on everything. So the escrow company almost works as the transaction coordinator when I'm doing FSBO um, here in California. So if you're in a state that uses uh, escrow companies in addition to title, I would just try and find a really good escrow officer. Um, let them know that you're a new investor and you know you plan to do more deals with them. But um, if you kind of build that relationship, they can really help facilitate any FSBO deal that you do moving forward. All right, let's move on to the next question here. This one comes from Daniel Budihardo. Hopefully I said your last name right, Daniel. Um, so Daniel's question is, hello, Rooks. What do you think about installing electronic keypad door locks? It sounds awesome for multi properties as you can maintain a master code for the landlord and reset codes for your tenants. If your house has multi exterior doors, say front and back, do you install one at each door? The best seller on Amazon is only 40 bucks. It's a great price, but not sure it has everything that we need. Thanks in advance. Um... I love the idea of uh, electronic keypads on properties, both for, I think, obviously, we don't really have any long term anymore, but if I did, I would probably do that. Um, It is just, I think, a nice feature to include um, because as a tenant, like having that kind of smart home functionality is a a really cool way to kind of make your property stand out from other ones. Um, Like, for example, when I bought my home, um, it didn't come with any smart home technology. We had to go back and we added our keyless entry pad at all, all of our, like our, our smart, uh, like light switches and stuff. But I bought earlier in the phase. Now the new home, like the newer versions of my home, they're selling with all that stuff built in. So even for new construction, it's something that builders are starting to add because they recognize that it is, um, I think something that that people want in their homes. If you're doing a short-term rental, a 1 billion percent, you should have smart keypads, Nothing is more annoying to me uh, as an Airbnb guest than having to fumble with like physical keys and open up a lockbox and having to go back and put the key back into the lockbox. So if you can do um, electric uh, like keypads for your doors, I think it's definitely the way to go. Just last thing, like which one you should purchase? We use the Slage on code or Slag on code. Tony,
0: Um, stop telling people like they're so hard to find. That was my point.
1: Like they're they're so incredibly difficult to find these days. It's almost like there's like a black market for these. But that's the one that we like the most. Um, There's some other cool ones out there as well, like uh, Remote by August Lock. Um, They have one. um, Like every smart company has some kind of electric keypad. So there's a lot of good options out there.
0: Yeah, I've used a, a Yale one before. I don't know specifically what it was, but we switched to the ENCODE one because of Sarah's recommendation. I really like them, but yeah, they're definitely uh, difficult to get a hold of. Um, So we use them for just for our short-term rentals. The issue that I run into with long-term rentals is especially at the small multifamily. Like in the apartment complex, it would be fine because there's a general Wi-Fi in the building, but when you have your duplex, so- you the tenant usually gets the wi-fi in their name so you would have to request access to have the lock connected to the wi-fi if you're going to be changing the code or doing things like that so for me i think of the advantage of doing it for long term is like if a maintenance guy is coming in and they're not going to be home you can set a code so that it's just active during the hour they're going to be there whatever and they don't have to have a key anything like that maintenance can be done when the tenants not home the second thing is when they move out of the property, they're most likely canceling their Wi-Fi. So to go ahead and change the code, you know, you won't be able to just do it so easily from your app because it's not connected to the Wi-Fi because they disconnected the Wi-Fi. So you would have to like manually go on to the keypad, and I think it's like there's some way you can do it through the keypad without having to be connected to Wi-Fi, but um, just like the convenience of having the app on your phone and being able to create new codes change new codes you can't do that without the wi-fi enabled so that's where I've run into like is it actually that big of an advantage because if I that like turning over an apartment not having to install a a new lock in there that like yeah having to send someone out that takes time to do that and just be able to remote do that would be awesome but I just I haven't figured out that piece of it yet as to how to do that
1: yeah, you're right. That, that definitely is the limitation. You you can use the uh, the app, um, even if Wi-Fi isn't set up, but you do have to be within range of the lock. So like you wouldn't be able to do it from like signature house to the to the property. But if someone was near the door, they could still go in. And I don't know what kind of can I don't know if it's like Bluetooth or some other kind of like, you know, local connection, but you are so even if there is no Wi Fi able to set the app up and have the lock communicate
0: and you can still change the code and everything and lock.
1: still add codes oh, okay. and stuff like that
0: okay yeah. that's good cool. well i mean that's d- better still than having to go in and, and change the lock okay yeah so i i'm also gonna continue to hijack daniel's question here because i had a situation that came up this actually happened friday night 9 30 at night get a call from the property management company that a dog is barking in the unit that we actually use as a short-term rental Okay, so they don't have the contact information for who is the current guest in there. So what happened was somebody, we think it was one of the neighbors because the na- one of the other units ended up calling the police because of the dog barking. But we looked in the app and it showed that the lock was actually disabled because somebody tried the wrong code too many times and it said the lock is disabled. So when we, we had the... Um, the, so when the tenant actually got home or the resident of the guest of the Airbnb when they went to put in their code it wasn't working so we had to go to the property and we somehow ended up resetting it through the app like having the phone there and doing it through the app and we were able to get into the unit but have you ever had that happen before where it's saying that the lock is disabled and you're not able to get into the unit and is there like a time frame on that or what should i I have done better next time to kind of prevent that
1: yeah usually it is it is like a like a time duration that is disabled but i've never seen it where it's just like permanently disabled you have to go in and and like reset the lock yeah Um, but what we do have we still have physical keys at every short-term rentals that way if for whatever reason the, the keypad isn't working, the guests can just go to the lockbox and grab the physical key from there and then use that until we're able to troubleshoot it on our end. So that that's typically our process.
0: That's a, that's a great idea to have that key extra there.
1: Okay. And we put that in our digital guidebook that says, hey, if for whatever reason you can't access with the keypad and we have a video where we walk, here's the lockbox, here's how you open it, grab the key and stick it in there. So usually folks are pretty good about reading directions most of the time. So.
0: Does the, the it has a key though, the encode?
1: It does. Yeah, so it comes with a key. Um, and then we usually just take that key and we put it in there. If we want to get really elaborate, we should probably make like duplicates of that key because right now there's only one key and it's at. That the one, yeah, Yeah, so, but yeah, it does come with the key.
0: Obviously, you can tell I'm not in charge of installing those and in the <laughs> so I don't need enough of that.
1: <laughs> there, there was another one called um, August Lock by, or Remote Lock by August, and that one was a little bit different because it, it actually just, it's like a like an attachment that goes on top of your existing lock, so you would oh. just use your old, your, your like original keypad and you just kind of add this on there and it unlocks it for you. Um, but that one, the battery life was kind of not the the greatest and the integrations weren't, weren't quite there, but yeah. Anyway, the Schlage comes with a, a key.
0: We actually started using remote lock. Um, the person that's been kind of managing our short-term mm-hmm. rentals, she recommended it and we kind of set that up mm-hmm. as to, which it, it, the customer service I have to say has not been that great with remote lock, but like once we got it up and going, um, mm-hmm. it's been beneficial. Yeah. Actually I had to use my social media power to yeah. message them <laughs> and to say like, what is going on? What's like, up?
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. And the person who runs our social media responded to me right away, got somebody to email the person that was sending it up for me. And like that person was great, but oh my gosh, it was a, a headache to actually set up that process. So, um, but now that it's like operating, everything it, it is going good with that. Um, mm-hmm. And I had one more question for the batteries on that. Do you have some kind of like quarterly maintenance schedule where you're going in and having the handyman replace the batteries? Or is it just when you get an alert, the battery is low, you're adding as a maintenance task? How are you handling that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's the latter. So, um, whenever the alert comes through in the app that the batteries are running low, our VAs create a maintenance task, uh, usually for the cleaner, because we just like keep extra batteries like at the property, and then when the cleaners get the next time, they'll just make sure they swap the batteries out for the for the unit.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for uh, letting me ask my questions. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that would be good.
1: We we got one last question. I think we can we can hit this one pretty quickly. This one comes from Sarah Lucas, and Sarah's question is: aside from the owner who in this case has no idea, how do you find out who is the lender for a property? Uh, so I'm going to share the one way that I know how to look this up. Uh, there are probably other ways to do this as well. Uh, but if you use a website like PropStream, PropStream usually keeps track of any mortgages that are recorded against a property. And you can see the name of the company that um, that is holding that note. Um, So like literally you type in any address and it'll show that information as well. And then similarly, you can go to your county and say, hey, what what deed of trust or mortgage security document or promissory note do you guys have filed against a specific property? And hopefully somewhere in those documents, you can figure out who the lender is for that for that home.
0: Yeah, you should, like if the city of Buffalo has it, I'm sure most cities have it, but you can actually go online to like the city records for the county and you'll be able to just search for it, search for, if you know that person's name, search for their name and you'll be able to come up as to, you know, with the mortgages that they have in their name. Cool. Well, that was an easy one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All great questions. We really appreciate it when you guys throw your questions at us, uh, mentally stimulates us. (laughs) And also we, some of the times there's like questions where, you know we're not sure, so we actually you know take the time and go and research it, and you know we learn some things too. And obviously, I learned a ton about uh, locks on this episode just from Tony. So thank you, Daniel, for asking that question because I had some burning questions I needed to figure out too. So um, mm-hmm. thank you guys, and you can leave us a voicemail at one eight 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 five rookie, or you can send us a DM at Wealthfront Rentals or at Tony J Robinson. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Ashley at Wealth From Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest.